Hello, I'm Buddy Martin, and this is the Best Fridays in Football podcast with Urban Meyer. It's time now for Urban Meyer Podcasts. On the program, it always leads off, followed by music Terry Bradshaw. Unfortunately, Terry will be out today. He'll be back next week. Our special guest, Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart, will join us, along with Andy Billman and Andy's Candies, and our own reporter, by the way, uh, who is doing a terrific job for Gator Bay, Cassidy Hill. Right now, it's time now to drill down on the coach, Urban Meyer, who, of course, is seen on the program every week. My favorite football show, Big Noon Kickoff. Coach Meyer, good to talk to you again. Yeah, great to talk to you, buddy. I have so many questions for you that I want to ask, but let's zero in on a couple of things about coaches. And we talked about this earlier in the year, a lot about coaches and what have you. And what we have in front of us are some really, really good coaches who emerged. Not that Dan Mullen is new, but this is his first, shall we say, top 10 gig as a head coach. You are uh, right there and helped raise Ryan Day, who's done a terrific job, and there are a few others. Uh, Kirby Smart, certainly. Talk to me about the condiments or the necessary requirements for good coaches. You gave me a list. May I read them? Care for players, competitive, toughness or tough, and football acumen. I think I know what these are, but would you address them one at a time, care for players? Sure. I I think that's a common theme why someone would get into coaching. And uh, back when I started, you know, at the, you know, I guess the dinosaur ages back, I started in the 80s, and there wasn't much money, if any money, in college coaching. Uh, A lot of former players would go into coaching because they loved the game, and that was really their whole focus is athletics. And then a lot of us had incredible mentorship and coaches throughout our career. I thought, man, I just idolized these coaches and, and that's why you get into it. And so the number one response or the number one quality of every great coach I've ever been around is their deep care, not, not their care between the white lines or not their care on fourth down and two, but they really care for people. And because coaching is all about human behavior, human behavior, and human performance of your players. And there's no greater quality than trust. And, and once that player truly knows you care for them, they'll trust you. And that's when you get those real deep, deep relationships. Well, you talked about that a lot back in the day, and you talk about it now. I noticed that the coach of Indiana uses the same reference. You don't think about these big, burly guys, these tough guys wanting love and wanting trust. And yet I know for a fact you built a lot of your program around that. And maybe it's to a fault in some ways and you care for the players. So how do you get that program across? And how do they know that they're loved? And how do you show? Yeah, I, I, when you say to a fault, I would argue with that. I'd push back really hard on that because coaches are evaluated. You know, there there is such intense scrutiny about you know, that the common theme, I know Nick Saban addressed it. Other coaches say where a, co- a player makes a mistake or, you know, you, you've, you, you give too much loyalty to that player. And, and, you know, everyone that makes those comments is never coached. And that's fine. I mean, I, that's like me commenting on a writer or a journalist and saying they have no idea. What, I'm not a 
writer or journalist. I don't know what they're talking about. You know, I don't, I don't live in that world. The coaching profession is the only profession that you go out. And I don't want to call them employees because they're not, but people you work with, you go into their homes when they're 17 years old, which I've done a thousand times. You sit with a family and I've been on the other end as a parent side. And that coach tells you, he looks you in the eye and you are going to take their most prized possession, their child and take them off to college. And you are expected to protect, to work, to teach, to uh, develop that young person, whether boy or girl, you know, volleyball player like my daughters or a football player like my son. And I'm expecting you to take care of that person at all costs. That means I don't care what the media thinks. I don't care which way the wind blows. I don't care about an accusation that might not be true or about political correctness. That has nothing to do with a decision you make about a young person that a family gave you their soul, their, their most prized possession. So, yeah, you can't – when someone says you can care too deeply for a player, I would push back and say then, would you care too deeply for your kid? You know, so I, you know, I would push back on that, buddy. And I wouldn't necessarily say that's my view. I'm just saying how some may perceive that. I know, uh, listen, as a ball player in, in high school, I would I would love to have my coach love me, believe me. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's a great asset, but I still think it's, as you say, people who don't understand the program. We understand competitive, but I think it means something more than just going out and being – it's really being competitive in all things you're doing to give your best efforts. Explain competitive. Yeah, the best players and best coaches I've ever been around, the common denominator is a competitive maniac, a person that refuses to lose. Competitiveness to overcome talent the majority of the time, if it's close. A competitive spirit is you, you from Michael Jordan to uh, a walk-on, uh, you know, a young guy that uh, was it, uh, what was my guy's name down there? Doggone it. Nick, uh, the walk-on I had in 2008. Oh, shoot, I, I don't have well, I know, on my uh, head here. But, yeah. I know Joey Sorrentino uh, also he, was one. Was I'm sorry, Joey Sorrentino was yeah. one of them, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that he wasn't the most talented guy. He was so competitive, and his competitiveness rubbed off on other people. There's nothing quite like a practice when you have competitive players going against each other because the development that takes place because of the refuse-to-lose mentality is priceless. And uh, competitive spirit, to me, has always been the number one common characteristic of every great player I've ever had. And when I go out and recruit, I go watch basketball games. That used to be one of my favorite things to go to. And I'd sit there and I don't care if the kid could shoot a jump shot, dribble between his legs or, you know, dunk a basketball. That's, you know, that's, that has, I don't, I'm not there for that reason. I'm there obviously to watch his movement, athleticism, but even more important in the huddle during timeouts on the court, I want to see if he's going to launch himself for that ball, compete. I don't care if they're down by 10 or up by 10. Because once you're a competitor, you're always a competitor. And obviously at Florida, you took it, you know, just off that 2018. I, to this day, Brandon Spikes and Tim Tebow were leaders offensive and defensively, respectively. And, uh, I mean, it was like a free-for-all when we went against each other because they were so competitive. And, and of course, I know the coaches we're talking about here, too, they have to have encourage that competitiveness. And the other thing that uh, you mentioned, and it goes right into what you said with Tebow, and spikes, toughness. Those guys were tough and hyper competitive. And this is what the coach has to ask of them. 
this is more than just getting bull in the ring. You're in the, you know, uh, preseason, whatever. This is toughness at all times. I guess it means not just on every day, every play means mental toughness. And it means playing when you're sometimes uh, not injured, but but hurt. You're exactly right. The mental and physical toughness are attributes also of great players and coaches. And the mental, uh, obviously, the physical toughness of a coach is a completely different story. We're not the ones playing the games. The incredible athletes are. So when you're talking about an athlete, is a guy that knows the difference between pain and injury. I've had a bunch of players that, you know, they just weren't very tough and they, they couldn't fight through the bumps and bruises that are involved in a physical sport. And then I've had the over-the-top tough guys that, you know, they were just so tough. They would, you know, they'd fight you all day long. But I think it's also with a, a coach, the mental toughness, because you take a job like in Ohio State of Florida and you got, you know, we all know it's expectation level that is beyond really achievable, but that's, you sign up for it. So you got to have the thick skin, the mental toughness that you can endure and sustain the day in, day out grind of being evaluated in front of millions of people every day. When you talk about this kind of stuff for coaches, we're talking about the high level what's expected. And I have a little list later on I want to ask you about. But this one, number four, is important here. Because when you're talking about Ryan Day, and even though Dan Mullen's not a young coach per se, it's his first, shall we say, top ten program head coaching job. Kirby Smart at Georgia, et cetera. And even the coach at Indiana, who was, I think, impressed a lot of people. Football acumen, so important. Smart people, and I think that's where these guys are at another level, especially Dan Mullen and Brian Day at play calling. Yeah, Dan Mullen, uh, I, that was what attracted me to Dan when he became my GA, and I offered him a job at Bowling Green was his football acumen was off the charts. He, uh, he understood space. He understood leverage. You know, when you say football acumen, you're not necessarily talking about plays. You're just talking about the fundamentals of the game, which I always talk about. The spread offense is all about numbers, and it's all about leverage. And if you understand those things, then the, the game, you know, you can visualize the game. And uh, Dan was exceptional from the first time I met him. And then we grew together in the spread offense concept. And, yeah, I think him and Ryan Day, ironically, they're from like five miles apart in New yes. Hampshire and, you know, and then Chip Kelly's from there, too, is another that's great football acumen. But Dan Mullen and Ryan Day, to me, are next-level uh, offensive-minded coaches. Well, and you got that. And, of course, like you say, you want to check all the boxes on that. And, and one thing Mullen talked about recently was his quarterbacks, which I know you dealt with a lot. That was your specialty, quarterbacks and wide receivers, et cetera, particularly. Um, and he says he wants his quarterbacks to not just know the play – he wants to know the why. What does that mean? Yeah, I used to have a, a I used to have a, uh, a quote, and uh, I had it in my team room for my entire career. I actually started at Florida when I met Bill Belichick, and the one term that would always, I um, the the term or the two two words game ready was something that stuck in my mind, and the objective and responsibility of a coach is when that foot sinks into the ball to start a game, your team is game ready. That means physically game ready, mentally game ready, and on point. Because practice, you know, you could be, and Lou Holtz used to tell me this, he had too many teams that watch your team is so ready to play Friday that they, they, uh, you know, they reach that point of where they, you need to play. 
but they're not playing until Saturday night. So you would always say, make sure your team is game ready when the foot hits the ball. And game ready is a result of um, obviously the practice and the and the the ability to uh, have your team ready to go. So that that to me is the one thing that uh, Ryan Day, you look in and a guy like Dan Mullen, that I would ask Bill Belichick, say, when is your team game ready? And he would say to me, and I'd put it right on the wall, when your team doesn't know what to do but why they're doing it. Everybody knows what. I'm going to go block this guy. Well, I'm going to block this guy because it's a gap scheme, and then that means if he moves, I'm going to climb to the next level because I understand the why of the play. And we've always that's why you call it concept teaching versus play teaching. We don't teach plays. Dan Mullen doesn't teach a play. He teaches a concept. And the concept is the why of the play. Matter of fact, maybe surprise how few plays this on his list, but different variations of it, what have you. I think about the 2006 championship. I do believe that you call Coach Holtz and ask him about prep for the game with Ohio State, and he told you, don't let them play that game before you're ready or they're ready. And you broke it down in increments of, I think, a week at a time instead of trying to do the whole fall. And your team was as ready as they could have possibly been for that big game and that win over Ohio State. That's a great memory, buddy, that I did. I called Coach Holtz, and he said it to me well, probably 150 times. I call him almost every day. And he would remind me the game did not play till you know, I think it was January 8th at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m., whatever that was. And then I started thinking that's when I put the three phases together. And we really carried that through every bowl game for the rest of my career. We, we did it in phases. And one was fundamentals, preliminary game plan, and then game week. And that's all part of making sure your team's ready on that given day uh, because they're used to a routine, and you don't want to break that routine. If you ever do that fictitious coaching manual you talked about on the program a couple of weeks ago, that's certainly one to put in there. Don't let your team play the game before they're ready. That's for sure. I'm sure it will be if it's not already in one of your books. Uh, you mentioned Lou Holtz. I understand he's got COVID. We wish him the best. And we heard today that um, Nick Saban now has COVID. We thought he already had it once. Apparently positive, tested not positive then, but now apparently has COVID. So that will impact somehow the Iron Bowl game this weekend. And you have said and several times that one thing that you have to overcome this year to win a championship is COVID. It's been tougher. We've had more games canceled. Uh, but what are you going to do except play through, as you say? You play for as long as you can't play until they tell you you can't play anymore. And this is why I think successful programs that have adaptability and Mullen feels like he's in that league and will have the better chance. And so do you see any of that around right now in these programs and these teams? Yeah, I made a comment that uh, COVID, there's going to be a lot like um, – uh, corporate America and businesses and you, I mean the strain of the survival of companies of organizations of football teams has never been this great and those with extremely strong cultures and great leadership not only survive they thrive and you're seeing that at Florida you're seeing that at Ohio State and that's because of the leadership and I'm not, I'm not just talking about the coach I'm talking about the athletic director the support because it's all it's a team effort to have a strong culture. And then you see other programs completely falling apart. And you can't say, as I said on Big New Kickoff, don't start blaming the players now. Don't, don't, you know, certain programs just all of a sudden they come up with bad players. That's not fair and that's not accurate. I want to go over a checklist. 
in this column I'm writing about Dan Mullen, and I'm going back to when he started the program, started Florida, and came there, they asked these questions. Can he get? Can his offense score points? Can he, can he beat Georgia? <clears throat> can he recruit? And then other things like defense and most of all, can he win a championship? He has answered three of those questions already, I think. Certainly his offense has been extremely played extremely well. And of course it's about, in my mind at least, the gifted quarterback, the head coach or the creative offense, and now solid defense. I think that the order has changed, although I know you believe in defense. In my opinion, defense is not the only thing that wins, not the main thing for winning a championships. It seems like quarterbacks and offense are. Yeah, I put the, I'm going to actually do a little study for that on uh, Big Noon Kickoff as well. And the recent history of the BCS era in the last 15 years, BCS and college football playoff, the reality is that you can't win a championship without great defense. You know, there's been a couple when uh, Cam Newton won it all. I think they had the 60th ranked defense. But other than that, you're talking about teams that had, you know, great defenses. So, yeah, I think to get to the game, but I, I refuse to believe that the game's changed. I think it's changed. But I still believe you have to have quality defense to win uh, a, a national title. And so uh, I don't think Florida's there yet. I'll tell you, they're much improved. Uh, I still have them picked to be in my final four because I have so much confidence in that coach, uh, Grantham and Dan, and I know they have good players. They're going to continue to get better. So I think by the time the foot hits the ball, if they make it to the playoff or national, I think their defense, if it's if they're playing well, they have a shot. I'm telling you, I don't I don't think you can just go into games and outscore everybody expect to win a national title. I still I still have a hard time believing that. Understandably, the optics are not very good at times on third down for Todd Grantham. I happen to like his defense. You happen to like his defense. He broke it down over the weekend, over the, during the week, about the number of plays where they really got caught. And sometimes it was simple things like, like, like Vandy going quick and them not being lined up, things of that nature, little details. But the first half was not very pretty. In fact, Florida was very fortunate to be on top because it should have been 10-10. And then, of course, uh, Kyle Trask hit Grimes for a touchdown that gave the lead 17-10. So the question becomes is and when do you know a defense has turned it around? And, and Todd Grantham said, look, there were nine plays out of the ones we ran where we didn't do well. We needed to fix those things. He said if we fixed half those things, we'd have a fantastic uh, uh, game. And you look around the league or look around the country – and if you say a defense had five mistakes, that'd be great. So he simplified it to that. And I, some people think maybe he's oversimplified it. They're still going up long yardage on third down. So we got a visitor, huh? <clears throat> so, uh, so the, I guess maybe those are the little details that go in, uh, go into being a defense. Do you think uh, you think Grantham will turn it around? I do. I, I did, and that comes from uh, not just feelings about the Gator football team and Dan Mullen. It's uh, history. You know, he's got a great history of, uh, I've coached against him. He was on the other sideline at Georgia. I've studied him and I've talked to Coach Mullen about him. I think absolutely he will. And uh, he's still got a little bit of time to do it, but uh, I do. I have confidence they will get that thing where uh, they can go compete for a championship. Urban, we have our first top 25. The committee has ranked them. We, we could sit, spin our wheels all day talking about it because uh, it's really going to be up to the matchups 
which I think is what we all want. We're going to find out about uh, the teams that have to play each other, uh, like Notre Dame and Clemson, and Florida and Texas A&M, excuse me, Florida and Alabama, if they play, if Florida gets there. So that'll be settled on the field. What is your view of these committee rankings, and uh, do you uh, you, you pay that much attention to them? I know you didn't that much as a coach because you always said it would be determined by (laughs) what you do, but Florida has it in front of them if they take care of business and could get to the big dance, Final Four, if they, in fact, could beat Alabama. That's a lot in one question. But starting with that, rankings, and then let's talk about if Florida would have a puncher's chance against Alabama. Well, we're actually going to do something on Big Noon Kickoff about that because I'm intrigued by it. And uh, uh, for the last five years, I was personally involved. You know, we in 2014 beat a team 59 to nothing in Wisconsin uh, to pass the eye test and jump two teams and get in the fight, get the final playoff spot and won the national title. In 2016, we uh, lost to a team that won the Big Ten, but we got in. And then in 17 and 18, we did not get in. You know, we uh, I thought we should have. Uh, we ended up going 13-1 and, and end up, um, uh, but we didn't make the playoff. And uh, so I kind of brought up the fact I want to see, especially this year, some teams are playing nine games, some teams are playing six games. There's no interconference, the way to evaluate the SEC versus the Big Ten versus the ACC because you're not playing each other. You know, normally that was an ace in your hole that you could say, okay, this conference is better because to, to me so much of it is who you play. And the word look test or the two words look test has never been more important. And then I thought, okay, wait a minute. Let's go look to see who's on this committee. You have seven athletic directors. You have two former coaches, two former players, a sports writer, I believe, or a professor from Arizona State. And, uh, uh, you, you know, and I just wondered, how do you get on this committee and what are the qualifications? That's something that not many people talk about. And when you go watch videotape, you know, if, you have however many people on the committee and no one's ever really watched tape. You don't just, my point is that you don't, if you've never watched videotape of a foot and you've never been taught what you're watching, why are you watching tape? So who's making this decision on a look test? The way I look at the committee for the most part, they're nothing other than data analysts, which we're going to doubt, you know, they're going to give you all this analytics, like who the best offense is, best defense, best rush offense. But that doesn't take in consideration who they played. And then they're going to simply look at your one loss record. And there's going to be perception about, well, the SEC is better than the ACC, the uh, Big 12, whatever. So my concern is when they say look test, buddy, who is making that decision? And when I look at the people on the committee, I think they're all very respected people. They're athletic directors. My understanding is a lot of them played the game, but – it might sound simple to go watch videotape and make an opinion. I'm telling you, it's not. It's very difficult. You better know what you're looking at. I'm glad you said that because I just hear people, well, I watch tape. Well, so what? I mean, you watch tape. I mean, maybe you love watch it. If you watch it, Urban Meyer watches it. I understand and appreciate it. If I watch it, so what? I can't evaluate it that way. So, yeah, that's overrated. I agree with you. They get over-analytical almost type things. I think it's a great question. I can't wait to hear what the answer is regarding – uh, how they get on this committee, which is the most powerful committee in college football right now. So, all right, it so is, and, and then the decisions they make influence a lot, impact a lot of people. Yes, you know, you're talking about we had two teams not make the final four. That change, you know, that changes the trajectory of their lives because I've been on the other side. You win that national title, 
you know, that changes you forever. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't like the, unfortunately, you know, even when we got out of the BCS era, remember the BCS era had all kinds oh, yeah. of different polls oh, and, yeah. and everybody complained and said, okay, we're going to get that all fixed. Let's go to four teams and have it all human. The problem with human, there is human error. Yeah. And, uh, and that, and, and I, once again, am I saying they don't do a good job? Never said that. I thought they would do a very admirable job. They're in a very difficult situation. My question is, are they qualified to make a decision when it's look test? Now, I'm not talking, you're not, the first three teams in the country are going to be obvious. Are they qualified to pick between the fourth, fifth, and sixth teams? Because that's what it's going to come down to. It really is. And that's going to be hopefully decided on the field. But if it's not, it's up to humans. And we know looking for, for officials that officials make errors. We all make errors. And as you say, there will be errors and it can be very, very costly. Uh, anything to comment on this week? Uh, Florida was six, a uh, and uh, fifth. Ohio State uh, fourth, Clemson three, Notre Dame two, and Alabama one at this point in time. And that's what counts. There are a few other teams in there, like Georgia being ninth. A lot of people are raising gain about that. How did it get to be ninth? But and then of course Indiana got a got to play a great game and uh, didn't get uh, got to twelve. And BYU who's making a lot of noise uh, to fourteen. Any thoughts about any of those rankings? Yeah, I'm going to actually do something on Cincinnati and BYU. And I actually uh, watched, we laugh, I watched, I watched a lot of tape on them uh, actually this morning. And they are really good. This is not a surprise. Cincinnati is really, really good. I think they're better than teams ahead of them. Uh, BYU is really good. I know their schedule is not very hard. The only Boise uh, was their only, you know, legitimate big time win that they that they had and they played extremely well that day. But I'm just telling you, they're both very, very good teams. And this will be that one year that, you know, after watching that film, I changed my opinion a little bit. You know, I, I, I think they're better than a couple teams ahead of them. So I'm going to really rethink this thing. I'm going to do a little uh, show you why on uh, big new kickoff. Uh, but I, I think, you know, when I put my four was Alabama, uh, Alabama, Notre Dame, Ohio State, and Florida. Uh, certainly A&M beat Florida, but I think, you know, I just think at the end of the season, Florida will be better because it's what are the four best teams. And I think a and really good. Um, and I, I have Clemson at number five, and I think Clemson's really good as well. And they played without Trevor Lawrence and lost. So I, I think those five are right now the best teams, but I'm telling you that Cincinnati team is right there. Well, they're at seven, so they're not like they're out of it. <clears throat> and and uh, what are they, eight and oh? <clears throat> I believe they are. And uh, once again, buddy, just watch, just once again, as a person that's watched probably thousands of hours of film, don't Mm -hmm. even know how much you put them on and take, don't ask who the teams are. Mm -hmm. You know, a a coach would say this team is better than that team. And I'm saying that right now. Hmm. I like your defense for sure. I haven't watched them, but a few plays, but I will take more notice. And especially if uh, what's Nate's number, by the way. He's number 31. I'll be watching for 31 just in case he gets in there, so that's for sure. Rooting for him. Well, they got uh, they got their game postponed this weekend. Oh, they did. That's right. I forgot. And along with yeah. several others, <clears throat> by the way. Uh, so yeah. that's uh, that's the thing that we're going to have to get used to is that you really don't know on Wednesday or Thursday what you got. So well, good luck to uh, to Cincinnati, and, uh, and I'll, t- I'll pay more attention. We used a term – earlier in the year, and you liked it and we liked it, called residual impact. When you play an SEC team every game, by the end of the year, you're probably fairly well beaten up. 
we've seen a couple of star players go down, including uh, Florida's tight end, Kyle Pitts, who's back, by the way, this weekend. Uh, has that residual impact as we look at the SEC and the divided way they are separated with the haves and have-nots? Uh, <clears throat> we have on one side some good teams, on the other side some bad teams. <clears throat> has residual impact played a role in that? I think that's still to be determined. You know, this is the point where it happens your last three games where you get bang, bang, bang. You know, there seems to be teams have gotten breaks because of COVID or because of bye. You know, they just get that week off, and and you'll see. I mean, uh, uh, I anticipate there shall be, you know, I know Georgia went through it at the quarterback position. Um, there will be residual impact. I, I don't know if you've seen it dramatically yet, but when you play – a team without, you know, two good teams back to back, that's when you'll see it. And you're, you know, I think that's getting ready to happen here in the next few weeks. So important as physical conditioning and what have you is such a, uh, those, those guys earn their money. You had some really great ones. <clears throat> and and uh, as the strength and conditioning and uh, people and the nutrition people, such an important thing this time, especially given all the things out there, including COVID. So, <clears throat> Coach Meyer, are you ready to do some Ask Urban questions? Of course. Okay, let's see what we got today. This is from Andy Billman, the executive producer. He says, Lisa from Sarasota. I meant to ask this question, Lisa. Coach, what did you think of the statements by Dabo Swinney on FSU? Well, uh, I, I read him. Uh, I didn't watch it. I read him, and I know Dabble very well, and I know how emotional he is. And you know, I, I just, I, I don't know Coach Norvell. I don't know the Florida State hierarchy. Those are pretty damning comments to say that a team on purpose would not want to play. And I, it's probably something I know that I, I've done things before where I've said them, and I think now why did I say that? So I would imagine there's a little bit of that now, a little remorse. Because you just don't know. You're talking about, you know, the way I read it is that Florida State made a decision not to play, not because of COVID, but they didn't want to play. And the way they didn't trust uh, Clemson's medical team or something. So uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I, I can't speak for Dabo, but I can speak for, I'm, I imagine at some point to say, you know, I maybe wish I hadn't said that. Yeah, he came back with one, though, after that, saying, don't be giving me advice from Tallahassee. <laughs> so he doubled down on it, and uh, I think we know how he feels. And uh, which speaks to the issue, which we haven't got time for today, but in this particular environment, it's tough on coaches mentally, given that they don't know what they got, their players get sick, they get hurt, their games get moved. And coaches, as you know, love routine. They want things to be a certain way. This is anything but routine. So uh, that's uh, that's that's the whole deal right there, isn't it? And I think you have to be aware of the fact that, well, it's hard. Okay, number two, the quarterback situation. This is from Bill Owens from Jacksonville. How much did Justin Fields hurt himself in the Heisman race? And has Kyle Trask moved to the top of the class for this week's performances by the major leading quarterbacks? Uh, I think he probably has. You know, I think that hurt him. I don't – I think he'll bounce back in a big way, but the reality is he threw three interceptions and uh, un, very uncharacteristic of him. It was uh, – those are three balls he shouldn't have thrown either. And uh, 
But just to say he's out of it, he's not out of it. The good thing is I'm I'm really happy that they moved the, you know, I was very opposed to when they used to, people used to vote before before rivalry game or before the league championship games on the Heisman winner. And I went crazy on that one time when I was like, how can you do that? You know, that the biggest games of the year on how to win a Heisman art should be not, you need Heisman moments. Don't, don't make up your mind and vote until after the bowl games. And so the good thing is this year, it's going to be well after the bowl games. For sure. Let's see. We got one more, I think, here we have to get. Let's see. Let me see if I can find Andy's questions. Uh, well, it's about Cincinnati. Uh, Wanda Jenkins from Cincinnati. What kind of a chance does our team have of making it to the Final Four? I think we know who her team is, and you just spoke to that. Yeah, I, I think realistically, on a normal year, it'd be very difficult because of the interconference games. And uh, but I think this year, and I think first of all, your team is very capable of winning, uh, playing in that CFP. Uh, and I didn't know that until I really studied it because I watched them uh, on TV on uh, Saturday night against UCF, and I went back actually this morning and spent a lot of time watching them. And uh, they're really, really good. As a matter of fact, I told you I think they're better than a couple teams in front of them. Final one from uh, Marissa Draper, Utah. You know where that is? Draper, Utah. Were you, were of you, course. Were you surprised by BYU's ranking in the college playoff, 14th? Yeah, I was, and I, I don't agree. I went back and watched them as well. Um, I'm going to talk about their defense on Saturday. They're better than that. And um, I know they're better than that, and they deserve to be ranked higher, but – you know, that's one of the penalties that you face when you don't play a tough schedule. You know, uh, Cincinnati at least played a couple more quality teams. BYU's in a tough position. I would do all I could if I was BYU to get another game. If there's any chance you can play a Pac-12 opponent, play them. If there's a chance, and I, I, I know there's some dialogue going on. I don't understand the ins and outs, but, you know, that's I do to answer your question, I believe they're better than that. Great stuff, Coach. Coming up next, Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart. Coach, thanks very much. We'll look forward to the show, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, buddy. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. This will be the voice of Mr. College Football. Tony, I'm just talking about your alma mater and about one of your, uh, one of your colleagues today that uh, we're, I'll explain to you. Uh, I was just going to pay you a compliment by saying you've always done everything with class and you've always been there. And I think fairness uh, today, uh, not a colleague of yours, but someone, you know, uh, someone that, mm-hmm. uh, that works at dog nation um, set off a few Gator fans, Mike Griffith on the Paul Feinbaum show. And I don't right. want to, to dominate this show. And by the way, 
Welcome to the Best Friday in Football podcast. Mr. College Football, good to have you. We're going to talk some ball today, and we're going to also discuss the top 25, if you'd like, and we'll talk about coaches. And, of course, we'll talk about COVID. Nick Saban uh, won't be at the biggest game of the year for Auburn, at least, maybe Alabama, certainly. Um, and uh, we'll talk about that. So how are you doing, Tony? I'm doing fine. It, uh, it, you know, the, the, this weekend, the Thanksgiving weekend, is one of my very, very favorites because you've got rivalry games. You've got a lot of stuff going on. And so uh, we, are, uh, we are all good. I know you're not traveling much, just like me. I'm grounded. You're kind of grounded, and we're not getting out to see the games. Oh, yeah. how, how are you enjoying the football season otherwise? You get to stay home a little bit. I do, and I get to see a lot more football um, uh, because of it. And uh, there's been a lot of good football played this year. I mean, that, uh, you know, and a lot of very interesting, you know, you know, buddy, all us old newspaper guys, we, we don't root for teams, we root for stories. We like great stories. And there have been a lot of great stories this year, a lot of befuddling stories. What the hell heck is going on at uh, Michigan? What's going on at Penn State? Uh, things like that. And uh, it's been it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad you said that because it is true. We don't root for teams or your players. We root for players that we know. We want them to be successful. It's just our nature that we want to see our people that we like do well. Um, but I think one thing I will say about journalists – and I think I can still call myself one of those. Uh, and you have served mightily over the years. What is it, 40 years, Tony, you've been doing this? Whatever it may be, a yeah. lot. Uh, 45, 45. 45 years. And, and I've always found you uh, to be a, a person, a, a voice of reason. Uh, you know, you know a lot about the team that you're around, obviously, and but you cover a lot of teams and you show a lot of respect. I think the word's respect when you're talking about an opponent. It's okay to trash somebody if you're really mad at them and they did something wrong. But I wanted to read, if I could, to you um, the tweet I sent out today after Mike Griffith went on the Paul Feinbaum show uh, and just refused to give any respect to Kyle Trask, calling and say it was a cute campaign. Uh, he also talked about the fact that Trask was probably fourth or fifth in the Heisman race. <laughs> I don't think a first grader would get that low, would have voted him that low. Uh, obviously, an attempt to uh, to ridicule Trask and get people upset about it, which he did thousands of tweets later. Uh, and a whole <laughs> bunch of people came out of the woodwork. And I, I felt I don't like to do this, Tony, and maybe I shouldn't have. You tell me. I responded because I felt like he made a fool of himself. And I've made a fool of myself a few times, and I've had people tell me, and they're rightly so. He said today, this is what I tweeted, Mike Griffith of Dog Nation needs a sobriety test after going on Paul <laughs> Feinbaum and starting his trash, trask, say that a couple of times, campaign. Comparing him to Andre Ware, ranking him fourth or fifth in the Heisman race, and this is where I had to take a cheap shot. Obviously, he wouldn't know what a winning quarterback looks like. He covers Georgia. So that thing, and it's all a good fun. But you know, your friend Steve, uh, Steve Melnick got riled up about it. He, he, your buddy Steve Melnick, and he he tweeted back, is put it back on Facebook. He says this has little to do with who is leading the Heisman race, more to do with the self-proclaimed entitlement of Dog Nation. For some reason, they seem to think <laughs> that their program is elite, 
and has been for decades, yet the record speaks otherwise. Imagine if you were a big-time football program and you had to defend your, your not winning a national championship in over 40 years. So there you go. Steve Melnick, your buddy, digging back a little bit again. Steve Gator, of course. I love college football. <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is nothing else like it. They don't trash talk like that way in basketball. I mean, they don't – Somebody may say, but this is, and this, listen, this, I think I've told you this story many times. I was subbing for Feinbaum back in early May. And in early May, my, my board lit up. And it was nothing but Georgia and Florida fans getting after each other. So this, I said, this is going to be, it's going to be really interesting. So, yeah, you know, first of all, as far as Kyle Trask is concerned, I, I, uh, I knew you were going to ask me about this, so I went and looked it up. 14 days ago, November 11th, I wrote that Kyle Trask was absolutely in the – should be in, in, certainly in your top three and is right in the middle of the uh, Heisman discussion. And this, is, this, is, this was after the Georgia game and before the, he put up big numbers the following week. So, no, he's, he's having a phenomenal year. The Gators are winning. The Gators are on track to play in the SEC championship game, and I'll be – if Kyle keeps up this kind of pace, he doesn't have to throw six touchdowns every week, but if he keeps playing the way he's playing, he'll be in New York for the Heisman Trophy. Well, they won't be in New York. They're going to do the individual schools this year. Right? True, was, yeah. true. But I get what you mean. No, be a final, I, I, yeah. I, forget, I forget so easily, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've been there so many times, you automatically get on the airplane and go to New York. That's what Heisman week. But don't do it this year because you won't find nope. it. Getting back to your point, so well taken about, the love of college football. To be honest with you, what's happened is Florida made it a rivalry again, finally, because Georgia's gotten the best of the Gators recently. And, of course, uh, you know, Gators had it their way for a long time with Urban Meyer and mm-hmm. Steve Spurrier, and now it reverted back. And Kirby uh, looks like he was putting together a juggernaut. It didn't turn out that way. But, I mean, things happen in a football game. Uh, Gators uh, are on a roll. Trask is, I think, playing as good as anybody. In fact, I have a friend who does the, you know him, Lee McGriff, who does the Gator Radio Network. Oh, yeah. Who's pretty much not given to ridiculous statements, who says flatly, if Trask keeps this pace up, meaning four touchdowns a game, he'll turn out to be the greatest quarter Gator quarterback of all time. That's saying a lot, but that's the point. So, well, enough of that. And uh, let's get to a few other things and stories that you're writing about and covering, et cetera. And, and I know the top 25 the committee came out with it and. uh I wrote down only 10. I don't really care about the others at this point in time. And I think there are a couple of places in there people are raising questions. Urban Meyer earlier said that he felt like maybe uh, BYU deserved to look a little higher and maybe Indiana, et cetera. Uh, we've got them in front of us, and we'll just read them out from 10 up. Uh, Miami at 10. Georgia, some controversy, Georgia being nine. Uh, Northwestern. Yeah, uh, is that, yep. Is that too high for Georgia? Yeah, that is definitely too high for Georgia. I mean, now, now their their only losses are to Alabama and Florida, but they were they were pretty much dominated uh, in those games. And so no, that that's that's high. Well, Georgia has a ceiling; they can't climb any higher. So yeah, well, I mean, yeah, in 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 this, a lot of this will all be decided on the field, which is how we like it. Uh, a surprise: Who would have picked Northwestern to be eighth in the country early in the year? Nobody would have. Uh, a team that Urban Meyer raved about, and it really has nothing to do with the fact his son's on the squad, really. He told me that uh, earlier in the show 
that he has seen Cincinnati on film now and did a film study mm-hmm. and was far more impressed than he thought he was going to be in terms of players. So I've not had a good look at Cincinnati. I don't know what you think about it, but he thinks they're really good. And his quote was, I think they're better than a couple of teams ahead of them. So wouldn't that be something for Cincinnati? Uh, Cincinnati has one of the best defenses in the country. Mm-hmm. We knew that going into the season. The question was, would their schedule allow them to uh, get in position to get into the playoffs? They actually, buddy, they, they suffered a blow today because their game Saturday with Temple yeah. has, been can- has been canceled. Yeah. And so that was that was an extra – listen, when you get – when you're in Cincinnati's position as a group of five team, you need all the help you can every get. Bit, you every need, bit, yes. You, you need every data point you can get. And this is not good. Now they've, only, they've got a game with Tulsa on December 4th, and then they're going to end up probably playing Tulsa again in the conference championship game. And I just, it's just going to be hard unless a lot of teams in front of them lose, like a Florida, like a Texas A&M, like a Clemson and pick up that second loss, I don't see a path for uh, Cincinnati. Well, that's true. I don't either. But it's nice to see a new name up there and nice to see that they're having a good year. And the Gators are above them at six. We'll see. They have uh, winnable games up through the SC to the SEC. And now the question is, can Florida beat Alabama? I'll leave that to you uh, if you think. It's, I know a lot of things have to happen. I have a lot of respect for Jones. And obviously, Najee Harris and uh, Nick being out with COVID this week didn't help any. But well, I'll just put the question to you right now. Do you see a pathway for the Gators to beat Alabama? Sure. Absolutely. The way that, the way that Florida's been playing. Now, it, it, will, it will be a tremendous challenge for the Florida defense because yeah. uh, those Alabama receivers, Mac Jones is playing this lights out. And, but, and think about Alabama is they don't have to beat you that way. They can they can line up with a great offensive line and Najee Harris and really play small ball with you mm-hmm. as well. And that's what that's what makes it so difficult. But yeah, look if if, if the Florida team I saw against Georgia uh, shows up and plays well defensively, then you got to play well defensively. The only way, I think the way the Gators win is to get in the shootout with those guys. And I don't say that about many teams, but yeah, I think Florida can beat Alabama, but. Your quarterback's got to have a great day, and you've got to force Alabama into three or four turnovers. That's been the formula. The rare times that Alabama has lost in the last 10 years, it's been a hot quarterback, and Alabama's created had has had turnovers. And that's, that is the roadmap to beating them. Or a kick six. <laughs> or a kick six. A miracle, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, you're right, though. Is I agree with that analysis, and for sure. All right, so A&M, who beat Florida, Justin Valley is fifth. I think a lot of people think maybe in a neutral flight site, Florida might win that game next time. But nonetheless, A&M deserves to be there. Then we got our top four. Uh, Ohio State, four. Clemson, three. Notre Dame at two, which is really the surprise team, I think, of the year. And Alabama at number one. Uh, so that's the first time out for the committee. And how do you think the committee did? I think they did fine. I think they did fine. Again, I thought Georgia was a, Georgia was a little high. Uh, I thought BYU should have been in a little bit better shape. But BYU is, is an incredible victim of circumstance. I mean, they knew they had a very good team coming back. But when the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, uh, Big Ten and the SEC uh, all went to the conference play only, 
they lost just about all of their schedule and had to build a schedule from scratch. I mean, their original schedule had Arizona State, Utah, Missouri, uh, Minnesota. They had five Power Five teams on their or six on their original schedule, and then all of a sudden they look up one day they got none. So it's their their schedule is what it is, but it's just not their fault. I asked uh, Coach Meyer earlier about a term that we sort of reinvented uh, this year, Urban and I did on on our podcast, called residual impact. And you understand this. This is the constant wear and tear of playing against an SEC team. Even Mm -hmm. though there are some teams that are down this year. In fact, if anything, there's the haves and the have-nots. On one side, you got some pretty bad teams. Uh, Then you go on the other side, you've got the Alabamas and the Florida's and Texas A&M's who can compete. So there is a divided, if you take look at it like this, the way things are going in Knoxville, Tennessee, Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, South Carolina, and Kentucky, not in good shape right now. And on right. the other, they, they need some wins. And the other side of that is that, uh, as I said, Alabama, A&M, uh, Florida, uh, Auburn, et cetera, and Georgia uh, in that group that could, these last three games will make a big difference. Now, according to what some say, the last couple of games of the year are the where warrior, the fatigue and the and the pounding gets you, and if that's the case, we'll see it show up these next couple of weeks. Well, and I, I would also add this to that uh, to that theory or, or, or idea is that let's take Kentucky at three and five. Kentucky is not having a great year at three and five, but I promise you, their talent level is better than some of the uh, uh, group of five teams that you would play. From the Sun Belt and others, I mean Kentucky. Kentucky's got. A, I think. I think they've got a good team. They've had a crummy year for them, based on expectations. But a veteran offensive line, deep running backs. My point is, but buddy, even the SEC teams that are struggling this year, from a talent standpoint, they are better than a lot of the non-conference games that teams are playing right now. And so, I think you have to factor that in. This is college football. A couple of more before we let you go, Tony. Um, I, I want to know what you think the pressures of these coaches are facing that they're under, especially the ones who are highly paid and expected to win in a season when they're so unpredictable. They're not even sure they're going to be able to play on Saturday. And players opting out, tons and tons of stress and pressure. And some odd favor yep. from some behavior from time to time, not the least of which most recently was Dabo. Debo Sweeney, oh, yeah. uh, kind of off the reservation with his comments in an unfortunate situation where the two schools couldn't agree if the game should be played in Tallahassee and, and they didn't play it, which is really the fans and players in the long run. But, you know, FSU has their medical protocols. I hope they'll get that straightened out and have someone from the medical staff of the ACC there to break that tie next time so it'll be done not by one team but because it needs to be. And then Dabo fired back after that about he didn't need any more advice from Tallahassee. Right. No, first first of all, when uh, when the medical people could not agree, then, then the protocol is that, yeah, they should have somebody to break the tie, but – the, once the medical people can't agree, the protocol is, is very clear. The discussion's over. And there's no place in this discussion, quite honestly, for head football coaches. Uh, the, only, the only people we should have heard from in a situation like that is either the director of athletics or the commissioner of the ACC. So Dabo, I, know, I understand why Dabo got upset. He had taken his team all the way down there. And 
he had had people sort of question whether or not, well, you know, we look out for our players and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I've known Dabo a long, long time. But uh, Dabo, that's one of those cases where you just uh, – you, you talk it over with the AD, you talk it over with your commissioner, but you don't come out and double down and triple down or something like that. So in that, in that sense, that Dabo might have been correct, but he was wrong. Very well said by a guy who is always uh, even-handed in fear. And what he does, he's Mr. College Football, writes it and talks about it and still going strong and always glad to have you, uh, especially during Thanksgiving week, to talk a little football and, and the game, Tony, we love so much. Well, it, 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 we are very, very lucky, buddy, to do uh, what we've done uh, and be around college football for as long as we've done it. And I'm, I'm grateful for it uh, Every day, and I've always told my wife and said, when I don't get, when I don't get excited about football Saturdays, I'll go uh, go do something else. Time to turn you out the pasture when you don't get excited about college football, man. And that won't happen, I'm sure. Nope. <laughs> always a pleasure, Tony. I hope you have a good Thanksgiving week and uh, watch a lot of football this weekend. And we'll All catch right, up to you best, soon. Best to you and yours, my friend. Thanks very much to Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart. Now we go from the sublime to, well, you fill in the word. He's my friend. He's a good guy. He knows college football, but sometimes he gets stuck in his own candy. This is a short and sweet Thanksgiving version of Andy's Candies. And hello, Andy. How are you? I'm doing great. And I've got, you know, I like a good song for the holidays. Hope Mm -hmm. everybody has a good and safe Thanksgiving. But I want to... You know, I love singing, buddy. I love I singing on that. this segment. So, so we're gonna. I've seen fire and I've seen November, Cleveland rain. I've seen many days when the Browns could never win. I've seen lonely times when the Browns went 0 and 16, but now the Browns are 7 and 3, heading to Jacksonville. Oh my gosh! And that's they James are. Taylor's song. You just desecrated. All right. I know you're a James Taylor fan, so I yeah. did that for yeah, you because I love you giving much. thanks. Do me a favor. Don't do it anymore. Okay. Uh. <clears throat> All right. Let's go. Let's get into business today because I got food to eat and stuff this week. All week long, we've been, of course, eating Thanksgiving food and right. continue to the weekend as the custom. And that goes with what? It goes with football. A few games played on Thursday uh, and the rest of them on Saturday. And we know the obvious, which is COVID. And the shortened uh, season for many, like Wisconsin now has no chance of qualifying for the Big right. Ten because of losing another game. But let's take the positive. You're a positive guy. Let's get right in to your picks. And by the way, how do you stand for the season, Andy? 15 and 18, a little hotter lately. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost the game as a Clemson, but I won two. I won IU. And I um and I won OU OU beating um, Oklahoma State, and then I lost um and I can't remember the other game I lost. But anyways, two and one last week. Two and one is all that matters. I remember the IU win. I remember the OU one. That's all well, that matters. The win. Yeah, and win not winning the game, but winning the point spread battle, which is what you That's do. Right. And uh, of course, uh, very impressive Indiana performance and uh, a young coach on the way up. All right, let's get right into the heart of SEC. Uh, because we got Cassidy Hill uh, coming up next. She'll talk about the SEC, but this is one we all talk about a lot more than we do this year, and that is the Iron Bowl. Auburn at Alabama. And I think it's a 24-and-a-half point game in favor of the Tide. 
Yeah, I mean, to your point, buddy, this felt like, um, you know, not to get off course, but this feels like the first real great college football weekend. Friday, good games. Saturday, great games. Um, just feels like a great college. It is a great college football weekend, even with the losses of teams that can't play because of COVID. Iron Bowl, always special. Always a big game. This year, no different with Alabama. And Auburn's good, too. Uh, they're 24 and a half. I've been looking at all of the takes. A lot of people are 50-50 on this game. I'm on the Tigers side. I don't think they're going to beat the Tide. No. But do I think that they're going to cover the 24 and a half? I do. You're going to get a lot of points in this game. I see this game landing in the 14 to 21 point category. So I take the Tigers. Quickly moving on to your Gators. Um, I, I just think this is simply one of these games where Trask will get really hot. They'll score a lot of points. So Kentucky has to keep up with Florida. And I've been reading a lot about Kentucky, and I've actually watched them quite a bit this year. And, buddy, their offense has just had a hard time getting Woeful. points. Woeful. And I just don't think it's going to change this week. Even with Florida not having – you know, they have a good defense, but they're not great. So you have the ability to score. Watching Kentucky last week against Alabama had to be frustrating for a Wildcat fan. They had opportunities to score points, just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And so with that in mind, you're going to give 23-and-a-half with Florida, but I think you'll be fine. Florida wins by 24-plus because Kentucky's having major offensive issues, period. All right. I think you got Iowa State and Texas. Yes. Uh, Matt Campbell, yeah, so, somebody you like. I like, too. I like Campbell a lot. Now, these are the two Friday games, so we're going backwards here in time. Mm-hmm. But Iowa State plays Texas. I love this game. I don't know how you feel. I love this game. I think Iowa State and Texas are even. And, again, I, I'm going on Campbell here. Campbell um, coached at my alma mater at one point, Toledo. So this is a Toledo take here. Mm-hmm. I'm taking Matt Campbell. I do think they're the better team. And I and I think they roll I think they roll in a close game in Texas. Yeah, that's and then a, finally mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry, just to say you listen to the show on Sunday, you say, That guy's brilliant. He just picked a game that's already played, but go ahead, you go on more. <laughs> well, those of you gotta get you know in the entertainment business, you gotta use your imagination. And for those of you listening on Friday, I think the best game is the three thirty game with um nerd at my Irish against the the Heels. Um, this is just picking because I think it's fun for the segment. If you're a gambler, I would stay far away from this game because I have seen picks where it's a pure coin toss. It's very 50-50 when it comes to people who they're taking. I'm taking the Irish minus five. You're giving away five. I think the Irish win, but I, buddy, I think this game has sexy, close, written all over it at 3.30 on Friday. All right. Once again, my friend Andy Billman, the executive producer of this show, so he insists we do this segment, and we'll continue to do it as long as he insists. And, of course, uh, we do know that uh, the standings are out, and we do know that we got to look at the standings. We'll address that next week on your picks, but always a pleasure, Andy Billman, to have you on for Andy's Candies. Thank you, and we're standing by now for a look around the SEC in Cassidy Hill, Chief Correspondent for Gator Bay. Cass, how are you doing? Hey, buddy. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm just talking to your friend of mine, Tony Barnhart, about some of the oddities of this season. And, uh, you know, here we go again with uh, more COVID and Nick Saban and of all people. And uh, is, there, there are lots of stories going around, aren't there? Yeah, college football uh, never seems to lack for stories, and especially this season and now especially this week. For sure. Uh, Every day, I mean, if you're doing a podcast and it doesn't come out for two days, it could be a totally different situation by the time you get to it. Yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. A lot of flexibility this year. Yeah. 
We had a little bit of a dust up today with the beat writer for the Georgia Bulldogs and Mike Griffith. And uh, gosh, the things unintentionally sort of spiced up. I've been getting a lot of texts from Gator fans and a lot of tweets. I think the last time I looked at that tweet I sent out was about 11,000. That's nothing compared to what you get when you, whenever you get into a discussion with Dan Mullen about Christmas lights. But In fact, why don't you go through that for those people who missed it because I referred to it in my column coming up about what happened in that. Pre- I, I think it shows Mullen's got a sense of humor. I liked it. Tell, me, tell the people what exactly happened because it was on SportsCenter the next day. Yeah, it was. Um, I keep Christmas lights up in my room all year round. They just make me happy. They're in a little, I have a dormer in my room, you know, an area where the window kind of juts out and it creates a little um, haven. And so I put Christmas lights up in there and um, just, I keep them up all year round. I guess Mullen has never really noticed them, which, um, you know, that's just part of uh, Zoom life this year. Um, And, in Zoom, we can kind of all see into each other's homes, which is a, you know, a different aspect of, of the job. Um, and so Mullen, after the Vanderbilt game on Saturday, was sitting there waiting for um, the post-game press conference to get started. Someone sets him up, and then um, they go off to another desk and, and get ready. And so he had a, a minute to kind of just sit there and look at his screen because he can see all of us as well. And he noticed my Christmas lights, and he said, that's a violation. There's no Christmas lights before Thanksgiving. Um, And so I I tried to tell him, you know, they're up all year round, but that didn't matter because they were Christmas lights. It was the week of Thanksgiving, and they were up already. And uh, he told me that was not allowed. And I told him not to to tell me how to live my life. And um, so, yeah, it was just a fun little back and forth. Dan's like that a lot. It's not always seen. I think especially with um, Zoom this year, you know, people are more apt to go and watch the videos. And um, But we have a, you know, he's, he's always been good like that, especially before and after press conferences when they're in person, um, you know, maybe after the video has stopped streaming. Um, and so I'm glad fans get to see that as well. You know, we do still have a job to do. That doesn't mean we're going to go easy on him necessarily just because we're friendly with him um but it is always nicer and it makes it a lot more fun when you can get along and, and really kind of enjoy um working with the people that you're covering and that's always been the case with dan well and you didn't say this i'll say it that he likes you and he should because you're friendly yeah. and uh, you will take a pop at him every now and then if he sticks his jaw out uh but uh, he only teases people that he likes and so you had a little, little deal. I, was, I thought it was good because I think at a time when so many coaches are uptight and Dabo's screaming about one thing or another, and all of them have done it. Dan's done his fair share at Texas A&M. He kind of went off the rails there a little bit. Yeah. And, and I get he why. He made that comment today, yeah. What did he say He today? made a comment today on the SEC teleconference. Like his, his questions, like his time was still going and nobody had any more questions. And he said, oh, I guess I hadn't said anything controversial in the past couple of weeks. Sometimes I just can't help myself. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I, in the column I wrote, which is about measuring the Mullen by the fact, the questions that he's answered, he's answered most of them. One of them I threw in, does he have a sense of humor? And, of course, the answer to that is, as you know, 
is yes. And I used your tweet as an example. So it's good to see coaches having a little fun once in a while, you know. And, and this year it's really hard. So so let me just uh, – you know about the, the – I'm not going to read the tweet again. Uh, Mike Griffith was on Paul Feinbaum mm-hmm. today and, and was really kind of bashing Kyle Trask. Now, I, I don't feel the need to defend Kyle Trask, and, and I'm sure you don't either. And usually I never do that when – you know, when someone has an opinion or wants to criticize uh, the Florida Gators or anybody, that's the right to do that. And, I, and I've done my share of it at the time. But I thought Mike went off, really off the script today, uh, really badly, mm-hmm. and, and really made a fool of himself in addition to insulting a young man who deserves better than that. And his, his refusal to say anything uh, about Trask to Feinbaum, to give him any respect, and Feinbaum voted him Number one in the in the polls, this has nothing to do with that. And that's fine. You can vote whoever you want to. But he purposely was sort of sitting on him and, and trashing him. I thought back to myself, well, I voted in the Heisman uh, race a long time, you know, many years. And I think I've had one or two moments I'm not proud of. Like I think one year I didn't put the winner in because I didn't see him play all season. He was on the West Coast. Well, I'm not going to put him in there if I don't know I've ever seen him play. Technically, mm-hmm. I was right. But, it, you know, I regret having to do it that way. But if you're honest and you only put down what you really think you know, how can you vote for somebody you've never seen play? You just right. go along with the group. So, But the, the Heisman is not perfect, but it's still the best trophy in all the sports, in my opinion, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's the pinnacle and, and the, the parameter by which all seasons are set. Um, you know, I hate that it's become strictly – I heard, I think somebody explained it this way the other day, that it's Davey O'Brien 2.0. You know, Davey O'Brien is the award given annually to the best quarterback in the country. Um, And and the Heisman doesn't need to be just quarterbacks. Oftentimes it is because they are the most um, visible person on the team. Um, I was pleased last year to see Chase Young in it. I think we knew that Joe Burrow was going to win. There was no doubt about that. But it was nice to see Chase Young up there and, um, you know, giving some defensive guys credit because mm-hmm. Chase Young was really the best chance for a defensive player to win it. Again, Joe Burrow's going to win it. But Chase Young was the best chance for a defensive player to win it since um, Manti Teo of Notre Dame, Notre Dame a few mm-hmm. years ago, back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was nice to see Chase Young up there. But I, I really don't know if there's a defensive player this year that you could even make any sort of argument to put in there. Well, there's another um, part of that, too, and that's why I wrote my column on Sunday, is that right now you used to say defense wins championships. That's no longer the case. I mean, right. their championships are uh, certainly a part of it, but you got to have an offense these days. So a defensive player mm-hmm. is not quite as valuable, unless he's a dominator, and there are some of those. I think they should get a <laughs> shot, but it's hard to vote for somebody when quarterbacks are putting up the kind of numbers they're putting up right now, how do you ignore that, right? Right. Um, and, you know, exactly, especially with how a quarterback changes the game, especially now, you know, it wasn't even 10 years ago quarterbacks were game managers. To have a quarterback that was a game changer, they would automatically win the Heisman, like Tim Tebow. Mm-hmm. Now quarterbacks that are game changers almost seem a dime a dozen. Um, but that being said, I, do, I think it does help to look around them as well. Um, Neil Blackman of Saturday Down South had an excellent article today 
looking at the statistical breakdown of the other aspects of Florida's team besides Kyle Trask Mm. and essentially proving this team is more than just Kyle Trask. This team is more than just their Heisman finalist quarterback. This team is a loaded and deep tight end unit that goes beyond just Kyle Pitts. This team is a loaded and versatile receiver unit. This team is one of the best offensive lines in the country. And this team is a defensive line that's really, really coming along and sort of carrying that secondary right now and the best special teams unit in the country. Um, so I, I would recommend people going to check that out on Saturday down south. As it just kind of makes you realize it's more than just trap. Um And that's the case on other teams as well. So if I'm going to put a non-quarterback in the Heisman Finals, I'd probably put um, Najee Harris up there of Alabama or Devontae Smith of Alabama because they both can single-handedly change the game as well. Cassie Hill, who covers SEC and the Florida Gators for Gator Bait Media, she is the chief correspondent, joins us to give us a round-the-SEC look at what's going on. Of course, the big news is in Tuscaloosa this week, Cassidy, and it's not good. Right. It's uh, Nick Saban will miss Saturday's game. Um, he has against Auburn. He has tested positive for COVID-19. He is feeling symptoms, so it is not considered a false positive, which is what he had the last time. Because I, I know the question is, how can he get it twice? Well, he didn't have it the first time. Um, it, that, that was determined to be a false positive. And so Today, let me see, I, I actually am still on Alabama's email list. Let me pull up the, the statement here. This is a statement from Dr. Jimmy Robinson and Jeff Allen. Jeff Allen is the main um, athletic director at SID at Alabama. So this says, this morning we received notification that Coach Saban tested positive for COVID-19. He has very mild symptoms, so this test will not be categorized as a potential false positive. He will follow all appropriate guidelines and isolate at home. So he needs, he's going to have to isolate at home for 10 to 14 days now. And um, that means he will not be on the sidelines on Saturday for the Iron Bowl. And uh, that's going to be, you know, an, an interesting game. What does that team look like without Nick Saban there? You know, it's a finely honed machine. I think it will run okay. But um, – I don't know if people give credit for how much of a, a psychologist, I guess you could almost call Nick Saban. Um, he's so good at getting a team ready mentally before a game. And, um, you know, what is that locker That's my question. What is that locker room going to look like before the game? What is that locker room going to look like at halftime? What are those conversations going to look like on the sideline after a play goes bad? You know, what are those in-game decisions going to look like? Because he's notorious for his in-game decision-making, which is some, one of the best in the business, if not all time. Um, who makes those decisions? You know, the, the playbook, the scheme, the as far as the, the game plan, I don't think that will look much different. But it's all the extra little things that take Nick Saban from a, from a great coach to a legendary coach that it's going to be interesting to see how the team runs without him on Saturday, especially in arguably their toughest game of the year. I know it may not be the toughest game on the field per se. They have the SEC championship and the playoff. Um, but that, that Alabama-Auburn game mentally is the toughest game. So what is it going to look like without Nick Saban, who's a master at the mental game? Uh, that's going to be what I want to see. 
Yeah, Greg McElroy said today, I heard him talking about the fact that <clears throat> that where he'll be missed is are things like not game management so much, but when there's a, a player who gets in trouble, does something wrong, mm-hmm. or misses an assignment, uh, and, and calling him off to the side instead of chewing him out, selling him down. You know, he's also right. good at breaking log jams, like McElroy said. They start out and play lousy the first quarter and they can't get started. He comes over and chews them out and gets them jump started. But McElroy thinks the game management is fine, especially with Sarkeesian in there, who's got experience. Right. But you're right, it is a game. You don't you don't want to have any mistakes in because Auburn is just dying to find a way to win this game. Right, exactly. And um, don't lose sight of it, Florida fans, because if Auburn loses, I mean, sorry, if Alabama loses, they need another game to make it into the SEC championship to decide the SEC championship um, because they would have a tie with Texas A&M unless Texas A&M loses as well. But I don't see that happening. Um, But Alabama would have the head-to-head over Texas A&M, but they would also be tied – um, statistically, and if they have the option of another game, they're going to have to take it, which makes that LSU game interesting. The LSU game, so much of what is going to happen in the SEC championship is going to be determined by or end up canceling the LSU game for Florida and or Alabama. Um, if Florida and Alabama both realize that they can make it to the SEC championship without needing that game, then does the league just cancel it all together for both teams? Because is it really fair to make Florida play it if Alabama doesn't have to? That's, that's giving Alabama a bye week while Florida plays a game against a potentially tough opponent by that time. That's a job um, for Greg you know, Sankey right there, you know? Exactly. But Alabama and LSU are both in the West. So if Alabama loses on Saturday in the Iron Bowl, they need the LSU game to make it to the SEC championship. Um, just mathematically. And so then do they get it and then does Florida lose it and does Florida get that bye week that Alabama then does not, which in that case might would be fair because Florida would have taken care of business and won the games they needed to win, whereas technically Alabama would have not. Um, So just from a purely mathematical standpoint, as far as the rankings go, what happens in the Iron Bowl on Saturday could be interesting going forward for who Florida could potentially meet in the SEC championship. Cast is making my head spin. It's too much to think about right now. <laughs> All I know is we got a Kentucky-Florida game uh, so far. Yes, we don't know what will happen the last minute. Don't we think got, it now. <laughs> yeah, Auburn, Alabama, uh, LSU, and Texas A&M, Georgia, South Carolina. The Egg Bowl, I guess, will go on. And Bandy now is scheduled to play Missouri. So I'm telling you, it's hard to know. You better check your program before you go to a game. It may not be the one you think you're going to go to. Exactly. Cassie yeah, Hill. They're moving all around. Uh, we, but as long as we're playing, that's all we can there ask you go. for. Any final thoughts, Cass? Uh, soak it up. As we've seen, these games can change on a dime. Um, after Florida, maybe I'm a little um, hardened. After Florida's outbreak with, you know, close to 50 people in quarantine, I think actually more than 50 people in quarantine, every other outbreak seems small by comparison now. So none of them phase me anymore. Um, but that being said, I hope they all stay safe. I hope everyone is healthy and is okay. Um, but that, like I said, that being said, we've seen these games and these weekends turn on a dime. So soak it up this weekend. Soak up the football tomorrow. You're going to be with one less NFL game with Baltimore getting moved to Sunday. Um, 
but soak up the ones you can use it to soak up all the food you're going to eat enjoy it on saturday it should be a good long day of really good games not many people know cassie covers the nfl as well as being chief correspondent for gatorade cassidy thank you very much thanks buddy have a good night happy thanksgiving happy thanksgiving to you cassidy hill Before I sign off with my Thanksgiving readings and final thoughts for everyone, let me just say how grateful I am for all the young men and women, the coaches, administrators, and their assistants for their bold commitment and their courage in keeping this football season going. To quote Dickens, these are, quote, the best of times and worst of times. Lots of thanks this week for Thanksgiving. Thanks for all the people who make it possible to have this podcast best Fridays in football. Gatorade Lighthouse Builders, Truth, Honor, Dignity, Dr. Jim Duke, Sissy Long, Lauren Meadows, Jeffrey Meldon of Meldon Law, Maxine, former Gator captain, Jeff Ulmer of the Ocala Quarterback Club and Stetson University. Ocala Quarterback Club sponsor of the Scott Brantley Trophy, Mike McGinnis, captain, and finally, Renstar Medical Research. My final thoughts. On Wednesday of this week, when I finally had had enough of his obfuscation on the Feinbaum show, and that's what Paul called it, I did something I rarely do. I fired off a tweet about the ludicrous comments of Dog Nation reporter Mike Griffith. Probably shouldn't have, but Mike was jerking us around with his dismissive and disingenuous comments about Kyle Trask likely being his fourth or fifth choice for the Heisman Trophy. And that's fine, except I know Mike, and that didn't ring true to me, because he's a knowledgeable football guy who knows better. So I called him out on his tweet with one of my own, making a snarky comment that I shouldn't probably have made. Quote, Obviously he, meaning Mike, wouldn't know what a winning quarterback looks like he covers Georgia. With apologies to people like Jake Fromm and Aaron Murray and some other fine Bulldog quarterbacks, I just pointing out that if he doesn't buy into Kyle Trask's record-breaking six-game streak of four or more TD passes or his record-tying 31 TDs in seven games, at least give the Gators star credit for beating the Bulldogs 44-28. to and stop making excuses. I don't know who I'll vote for with my Heisman ballot, but right now I'm leaning toward number 11 of Florida until somebody or something knocks Trask off that perch, which obviously Mike Griffith can't see on a clear day from his front porch in Athens, Georgia. We hope you're enjoying the best Fridays in football podcast with Urban Meyer and Terry Bradshaw. Hopefully Terry will be back next week. If you do, please share it with your friends. On behalf of director Brendan Martin and executive producer Andy Billman and Cassidy Hill, I'm Buddy Martin, and you've been listening to one of the best Fridays in football on Evergreen Podcast. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. 
you might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.